Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Brandon Daniel, CEO of Exeger, a supply chain and third-party risk management platform that's raised over $160 million in funding. Brandon, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks. It's good to speak with you. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm the CEO of Exeger, which is one of the largest supply chain management and supply chain risk management software companies in the market. I have about 20 years of risk management experience as a practitioner. So I've done everything from work on the overhaul of the financial markets after the financial crisis in 2008 to help to overhaul the life sciences market in the mid 2000s after there were a rash of new regulations that basically, you know, regulated how they were interacting with doctors and selling their products and, you know, specifically focused on off-label marketing through to um, helping the federal government buy goods in the COVID-19 response effort where we helped uh, the government buy billions of dollars of products and avoid $500 million of fraud, waste, and abuse. So I'm a risk manager as a practitioner, but then I'm sort of a, a business transformation and entrepreneur at heart. So I've been a part of building a couple of different businesses. One was a company called CPA Global, which is today called Clarivate, and it's a $15 billion company and probably the largest IP and legal software company in the world. Another company that I built was a company called Clutch Group, now part of Moray Global. And then finally, the company that I'm in today, which is Exeger, I've been here for about going on six years. I used to be the president before I became the CEO, and Mike C., my predecessor, handed the reins to me last year. And when you joined the company, was that always part of the plan or did you just rush at your job and, and work your way up? You know, I would not say that Mike Tchaikovsky, who was the former CEO of USIS, the former CEO of Marsh McLennan, the former CEO of Kroll, ever gives anything to anyone. <laughs> I think the plan was there was a requirement for succession. You know, Mike is he's got four years of corporate experience. There was a plan for succession, but I had to earn it, right? So I had to help build our technology business, make sure that we had good product market fit in the markets that we were attacking. And I had to show the growth track record that we've had in order to take the CEO job. And take me back to when you were, let's say, 10 years old. Was 10-year-old Brandon just dreaming of risk management or where did that come from? No, no. 10-year-old Brandon... Definitely would have thought the technology part of the job was cool. Uh, would have been impressed with the fact that I've become a programmer first by hobby and then by practice, right? But I don't think 10-year-old Brandon would have really understood or been as interested in risk management. I kind of ended up in risk management through customers, right? So I was at LexisNexis and one of my largest customers, a company called Medtronic, needed me to run a few of their investigations. I was on the legal side of the LexisNexis business. They needed us to deploy our software, and then they needed someone to help them really implement it 
and accelerate the parts of the case that our software could. I got put in place as a consultant, ended up really deep in the investigation in that one matter. And that really turned me into someone that loved combining risk management and investigatory skills with technology. And that's been my career ever since. Nice. That's so cool. Now, can you give us a behind the scenes look of what it was like as part of that COVID response effort and that task force? You know, what are some of those stories that maybe haven't been publicly shared too much that you're okay with sharing or just anything you can share from that experience? I think our audience would find that very interesting. Well, so the first thing is the most interesting part for me is what it did to our business, right? So the COVID-19 response effort, we had been using our technology to help federal agencies, financial institutions, and corporates essentially do either reputational or cyber due diligence on vendors, right? And so the need was 100% focused on compliance. In the COVID-19 response effort, we got to unleash the full capability that we had built that assessed operational risk, that assessed financial health, that assessed your technical capability to actually deliver the supplies that the customer was procuring. We got to use the full breadth of the platform that we had built in real time, in a real, you know, sort of battle or mission focused scenario, right? Mm -hmm. And so the most interesting thing was how relevant the technology was to this mission and to the fight where you're trying to you know, stop forced labor, where you're trying to avoid adversarial finance, where you're trying to stop, you know, fraudulent or fake companies from siphoning money away from, you know, critical initiatives like buying PPE, medical devices and pharma in the COVID-19 front lines. You know, it was incredible to see how often we were actually finding companies that were not appropriate to buy from either because they didn't have the technical capability or they were, you know, reputationally problematic or because they were literally just fraudulent companies stood up to take money away from the taxpayer. It was coming up more often than you'd think, right? So, you know, if we would vet a thousand vendors, there would be some cases where you'd have 10, 15, 20, 30 companies that you would exclude from the bid because they were so clearly unable and unprepared to deliver. So the first thing that struck me in the COVID-19 response effort is the demand or the requirement to conduct rapid due diligence on companies that you plan to do business with to make sure you're making good buying decisions was so critical and was so real. The second thing that came out in that process is the need to understand more than just the surface level of companies that you do business with, right? So very often, you know, you'd have a company that was a bona fide distributor, but they would be purchasing, you know, masks from a company that was, you know, three weeks ago, just like a esthetician business. And they wouldn't even know that that potential supply was tainted or wouldn't meet the mask mandates or, you know, couldn't qualify as an N95. So the second thing that it did for our business is it helped us to not only understand how critical the need was, it helped us to understand a little bit more about our customer's use case, which is we need to pierce the veil, not only on who we're buying from, but who they're buying from and who they're buying from so that we can see 
the problems that potentially sit at the bottom of the supply base. And so the ability to give customers supply chain visibility and to rapidly risk assess vendors using our open source data on the fly was born out of the COVID-19 response effort, right? Over the last three and a half years, everything that we've done was informed by that one mission set, Brett. So it's just, it was transformative for the company. A couple of things that were really interesting sort of beneath the surface were the issues that we were able to call out. So as an example, back in March of 2020, you may remember everyone was talking about needing ventilators, right? And there was this huge push for companies to get into the ventilator market, right? Ford was talking about building ventilators. Bloom Energy was talking about getting into ventilators. They were starting to pull ventilators together from like scrap parts, right? And one of the things that was really interesting is that a few companies released open source schematics that any company could utilize to create ventilators to ramp up production. And everyone thought, oh, okay, we're going to end up with 20,000 ventilators coming out from industry every month. When we did the analysis in the platform, so when we built out the ability to see the supply chains, when we did the analysis in the platform, what we saw was that the fact that everyone was trying to create the same ventilator actually created an inherent dependency in the supply chain where they were all trying to get one part, which is called a solenoid valve. It's essentially what allows you to sort of attach to the ventilator, the actual breathing tubes. That solenoid valve that was attached to that commodity ventilator was only made by one company in the world. And that company was a small company based in Italy. And that company based in Italy had essentially set all of their employees home. So, you know, you basically have this negative externality from something that was extremely, you know, sort of egalitarian for companies like Medtronic and ResMed to do, which is to release these open source schematics that people could start trying to build themselves. You have this negative externality where this one company then becomes this critical supply chain dependency and no one knows it, right? So the other thing that it illuminated for us, you know, was the sort of frailty and the dependencies that we have in our supply chain that no one could see, no one knew about until we were in a crisis and the requirement to change that, to add visibility. One of the other interesting things from the COVID-19 response effort was the amount of effort that went into securing the supply chains from a cyber perspective. I think one of the coolest things that the government did, and we were a part of sort of assessing all of the suppliers along the COVID supply chain logistics. One of the coolest things that the government did is actually we did the cyber assessments. And if we found a critical supplier in the logistics of the COVID-19 vaccines or medicines, they would actually reach out to them and like CISA and DHS would offer them services to help them increase the resilience of their cyber infrastructure to make sure that they could remain a part of the COVID-19 supply chain. I always thought that was an interesting way to sort of interact between a you know private entity and a public entity to sort of like reach out and ensure that you've got the expertise, that you've got the funding, that you've got the skill sets that you need to become cyber resilient, basically like proactively 
mitigating risk for the company using open source data was another really cool example of something that was totally novel that we did in the COVID-19 response effort. It's interesting to hear it from your side because I was on a, a different side of this. So I was working with a vendor and I was an advisor for a vendor called SIO2 and they were part of Operation Warp Speed and they won a contract, I think it was 150 million to supply vials to the government for Operation Warp Speed. And yep. what I saw there was just, for lack of a better description, it was insane. Uh, the growth that they saw from being part of Operation Warp Speed completely transformed their business. You know, I think they'd been around for like seven, eight years, something like that. You know, They were very heavy in R&D and I think they were struggling a little bit to get adoption. And then the second they won that contract, it seemed like the floodgates opened and they just got a lot of trust and credibility from being part of those efforts. Did you guys experience something similar? Did you get a lot of that trust and credibility by being part of this task force? And then was that able to translate into business growth for you? The answer is absolutely yes. So being a part of the joint acquisition task force, being a part of Operation Warp Speed, what it did was it set us apart from our competition because our competition was all in the sort of bidding process, in the pilot process at the very beginning of the COVID-19 response effort, right? They threw every technology in the world into the basket of tools that those Operation Warp Speed and Joint Acquisition Task Force product owners had available to them, right? Mm -hmm. And so when people saw our ability to quite literally due diligence on 11,000 companies and illuminate 30 markets and to support billions of dollars of transaction decision-making, that reverberated through the federal government. So we ended up getting a contract through GSA to support a federated information sharing utilization or use case for our software across the federal government for all of supply chain risk management. So we saw the federal government recognize the unique nature of what it was we were doing, utilizing open source data to get supply chain visibility. And we saw all of them come to the table and say, we need this in our weapon systems. We need this in our critical infrastructure. We need this in you know the things that we buy every day, right? And then the other thing was, at that moment in time, the Honorable Ellen Lord, who's the undersecretary for ANS, had stood up with a couple of her key deputies, namely Jen Santos and Stacey Cummings and Katie Arrington. They had stood up the industrial-based council. And what they were quite literally doing was showcasing the data that we were producing every day on the markets, on the suppliers, on you know the buying trends, on the places where we could get reliable sourcing and ethical sourcing and where we couldn't, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we ended up seeing from that was a huge amount of growth because then those cloud companies that were involved in the Joint Acquisition Task Force and the Operation Warp Speed Task Force, they were all immediately privy to how our technology worked and how it was differentiated. So they became customers. You know, the medical device, pharma, PPE companies you know, all were getting our data, were a part of the procurement process that we were effectively supporting. And so then they became customers. The defense contractors that received funding because we identified that there were programs that they had that were at risk in the supply chain, they became customers. And so what we saw 
is the company ramp extremely quickly in supply chain and third-party risk management. I mean, you know, we went from 10 million of ARR in 2019 in the third-party and supply chain space, you know, to a place where in the next 12 months we'll be at 100 million in ARR, right? And so if you think about it, that kind of explosive growth only happens when people see how your technology, how your capability can meet a need in real time, right? It's a bit of a black swan moment, but it's also then sustaining and continuing that kind of delivery that then leads to expanded or explosive growth. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And I want to just talk about that growth a little bit because that's just, it's just crazy numbers, especially given the funding that's been raised. So we've brought on a lot of companies where they've raised 500, 700 million. And when I ask them about growth, they're very, very quiet about revenue. And I think that's typically because it's very low. I think in the media, a lot the last couple of years, they've been saying, you know, there were companies that were raising hundreds of millions of dollars with, you know, multi-billion dollar valuations, and they had less than 10 million in revenue. So given how much you've raised, that's just such extraordinary growth. That's you know honestly amazing. So let's talk about that. What do you think you've gotten right? How do you pull that off? I'm sure there's yeah, a lot of factors that go into it, but if you had to try to distill that growth and maybe reflect on some of the lessons learned from achieving that growth, what would that look like? Yeah. In the first few years of the growth or first couple of years of the growth, it was really focusing on the customer need in terms of our product development. So, you know, we had experts in the supply chain use cases. We had experts in the governance, risk, and compliance use cases. And we had built out a fantastic team of engineers to work with them to modify the use cases to that layer of expertise. But really, you know, it was being led by our customers. So I'll give you an example about three, uh, maybe two and a half years ago, actually, we had a customer say, hey, so I love the operational risk, financial health, ownership control and influence, and reputational risk scoring that you do. But I really want to carve out for just ESG risks. So just environmental, social, and governance risks that we're encountering, right? And so what we did was we focused on a rapid, iterative, customer-informed development plan to carve out from our other risk scores the things that were specifically focused on environmental risk management or decarbonization or climate change, the things social bucket that were about forced labor or about you know health and safety or some of the other issues that are aligned with sort of the S piece of ESG, and then looking at you know cyber and you know, sort of corporate directors management for the governance side. We basically went on a six-month sprint with that customer, building and iterating with them, right? And so one of the things that we did was as long as it was in the use case of third-party and supply chain management, we were pretty flexible 
on allowing our customers to bring us into new areas that allowed for additional share of wallet or allowed us to get, you know, new economic advantages or, you know, a better economic mode. So during the first couple of years of growth, we really focused on customer demand. The second thing that we did to ensure that the growth was there is as soon as we had that first bit of momentum, right? So we're talking late 2020, you know, we had all this customer momentum from the industrial-based councils and the COVID-19 response effort. We started to immediately implement an expanded Salesforce, right? So we went from no BDRs to 10 BDRs, right? We doubled marketing spend. The thing that we had to do is we had to make sure we didn't lose that momentum that we were able to cultivate because once you have momentum, you have to keep it. And it is very, very easy to lose it by not betting on yourself, right? So in addition to sort of being customer-led in our product development, so we knew that what we were doing was adding value to the customer journey or use case, we also ensured that the momentum that we were seeing off the back of the COVID-19 response effort was being capitalized off of. And then the last thing was when we hit the recession, right? So, you know, you're walking into 2022, tech valuations have dropped precipitously, right? You've got sort of this 70% year-on-year growth, 89% CAGR that you're trying to maintain. You know, you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I've got two options. I can either continue to invest in the scale and burn, or I can basically take a little bit of the foot off the gas off of growth and I can get to EBITDA positive on a sustainable basis so that I can just weather the storm, right? Mm -hmm. And what we did was we did a much, much finer review of our sort of core SaaS metrics to actually dictate what we should do. And what we did was we identified that one, our data hosting or actually our overall hosting costs our data costs and our essentially services costs, like the open source services that we were using, that we had grown them on a consumption basis and hadn't reset them now that we had gotten to an economy of scale. So what we did was we shrunk our pool of hosting companies, shrunk our pool of data providers, and actually spent more with each of them, right? So we brought it down and focused our hosting on like AWS, right? We took our data vendors from 83 to 20, but bought more from the 20. Mm -hmm. And basically what it allowed us to do is to cap those costs so that as we scaled up in terms of revenue, we would get the delta between what had become cap costs that might've been at, you know, higher rates than previously feasible, right? But we got the benefit of cap costs as we continued to scale and we knew that we would scale and we knew that we could dilute it in unit economics, which is which has come to fruition. In fact, every net new dollar that Exiger adds in terms of software revenue equals 90 plus percent gross margin that falls to gross profit, right? So the unit economics that we've achieved by you know focusing on the elimination of waste and hosting and consolidating and building strategic partners on the open source data side has been phenomenal. The second thing is on services, 
you know, there's a lot of work that can go into, like we were using a translation services example. There's a lot of work that can go into nuancing when you do or do not need a service, right? And we had just sort of taken this, you know, blunt instrument approach to translation as an example, and it was costing us a few million bucks a year. And what we did was we said, okay, the URLs that we're bringing in, the open source data that we're bringing in, we're going to build a cache of that. And all we're going to do is if that URL already exists in the cache and has already been translated, we're going to use that translation, right? And then we said, what we're also going to do is we're only going to translate, put through the translate function data where translation is required for the core function of the product, right? So we don't need to translate names of companies. We already have that built into the way that we screen and match companies. So we made that one change and it took it from two and a half, three million dollars of translation all the way down to about 150,000 a year. So we first looked at our total, you know, cost of goods sold and OPEX, and we identified where there was waste that had come out just because we were, you know, 100% focused on scale and not focused on efficiency. And that ended up generating more margin. And then what we did is we said, now, now that we have that margin, we are going to invest it in sales and marketing because we have to push through the headwinds of the recession. So we still got to EBITDA positive, but what we did is we took all of the benefits of these efficiency initiatives and stuck it into sales and marketing to make sure that we could maintain our growth rates without trading our long-term sustainability. And that that goes to your efficiency of funding point, right? Like we tried to self-fund essentially the doubling of our sales and marketing team from 10 to 20 million. We tried to self-fund it with efficiencies and waste removal, which we were able to do. And then what that allowed us to do is to say, okay, so we've invested this money. Are we willing to take a hit on our sales efficiency numbers for the next year, live with the cash trough of you know taking on new reps, taking on BDRs, taking on marketing investments that aren't going to lead to MQLs until you know 2023? We hit the I believe button on that, right? And it's accelerated our ARR capture significantly, right? So like we're 2 million ahead of our bookings targets for April, $2 million in bookings in excess of what our bookings target was. So we're 2 million above ARR for April. And now that's all flowing through into the P&L and it's creating, you know, net new cash that again, we can reinvest in the business that we can put into product that we can put into mechanisms to ramp. So, you know, you have to make trade-offs, right? And so what we did was we looked at our overall enterprise and we said, okay, we've got to focus on efficiency, generate new margin. Then when we've got that new margin, we have to reinvest it into the sales and marketing area and say to ourselves, we're okay with a sales productivity issue in 2023 because we know that it'll have the benefit of ensuring that we maintain our growth rate, right? And what that has done for us is not only had that effect of maintaining the growth rate, but actually accelerated and seen higher benefits because our customers have largely put us in a non-discretionary bucket as a critical technology area. So we didn't mm-hmm. see any headwinds as we anticipated. We started to outperform, which is a great result, right? Yeah, that's so amazing. 
And when it comes to customers, what's the split between government and private companies? Yeah, so it's about 50-50. We've seen lots of defensive sort of acyclical growth in the government. And, you know, the government is is focused on one thing right now. It's getting our supply chains right. You know, it's making sure that the products that they're buying are resilient, compliant, and cost-effective, right? And in the commercial space, we're seeing also continued acceleration because they're trying to solve the same challenge. So right now, the ARR split is about 50-50. And I'm sure you're seeing this conversation as well, but what I see a lot online is, I guess we could say it's like a shift where it's becoming cool again for Silicon Valley and, and tech to work with the government and support the government. Because for a while there, it was not cool. I think Google had some contract or Microsoft, one of the big companies, and the employees walked out and were protesting it. And that was happening a lot with startups and just tech companies in general, not supporting the government. Are you seeing that as well? And are you seeing those conversations shift and change for the positive? Are tech companies becoming more open to working with the government? You know, I think it is some of the coolest work we do because it's the one place where I know what we're doing is going to a public good. I think that some of those contracts had less to do with the fact that it was the U.S. federal government and more to do with the fact that it was about analyzing people, right? You know, there are real questions on data privacy. There are real concerns about, you know, sort of oversight of, you know, Intel data collection on people. I think some of those contracts may have come under scrutiny just because of the types of data that they were managing. But, you know, when we find a supply chain issue, right? So like when Russia invaded Ukraine, right? We were able to deliver to the federal government information on those supply chains to make sure that those sanctions were punitive to the folks that were infringing upon the democracy of the Ukraine. But we were also able to make sure that we weren't, for instance, unnecessarily compromising the requirements and the demands that our defense industrial base has, or that, you know, our critical infrastructure has, or that the European infrastructure has, right? So, you know, the work that we've done for the federal government has largely been to serve, you know, the U.S. citizen, but then even the global community of democratic allies. Like a lot of work that we're doing is looking at how we can source goods from Korea, how we can source goods from India, how we can source goods from the U.K., how we can have better global economic relationships, how we can diversify supply chains. And so... I think when you're working with the federal government, you have a real opportunity to do a public good. And if you use that opportunity, I think that that should always be in vogue, right? Mm -hmm. But the other thing about the federal government is that the federal government is trying to make sure that it is cool to be a vendor. And so they have redesigned their procurement practices to be adaptive, faster, and smarter. They have made it so that you're able to prioritize your development of your product in a way that they're able to be a good customer and partner in terms of IP, in terms of funding. And so I think Silicon Valley is really interested in working with the federal government because there are lots of benefits to the way that the federal government has changed 
its manner of procurement or acquisition to be a foot forward and to inspire innovation in the United States, which is, it hasn't always been the case, right? But it's certainly been the case in the last few years. And would you recommend for startups, you know, depending on the technology to pursue the government as their first customer and, and trying to get the government as the very first customer, or would that come later after they've already tested it with some private companies? So I'm a little bit biased. I think you really have to have something that's ready for deployment in order to go into the federal government, just because there are a number of gates that they have from a security perspective or from, you know, a technical acceptance perspective that you want to make sure you're ready to meet. But there are a number of really interesting programs that the government sponsors that help startups to get you know, their first foot in the door that I would really advocate for. So one of them is AFWorks. It's an adaptive acquisition platform put together by the Air Force. I've had a number of friends that have worked in conjunction with the AFWorks team. In fact, Major General Holt from the Air Force is on the Exeter Advisory Board, and he was a big champion for AFWorks. So AFWorks is a great opportunity to get funding, to get into cyber programs, to really, you know, sort of demonstrate cutting edge technology and how it can support, you know, the U.S. federal government mission. Also, the sort of innovation areas of the U.S. federal government, like there's a defense innovation agency, they are also great on-ramps into the federal government. And then finally, everybody knows about it, but InQtel, right, is another area of investment that has funded a lot of the technologies that we use today on the commercial side. So I think that there are great ways in which small software companies, startups, even companies that make electric aviation or unmanned aerial vehicles or drones or whatever it might be, There are lots of ways that technology companies can get into the government on some of these R&D type vehicles, and I would advocate for those all day. And if you had to choose one piece of advice that you'd share with a founder who wants to get their technology in with the government, and let's say they're early stage, they've just raised a seed round, five million bucks, something like that, what would be your advice to them? So one of the things that most of us don't think about is that the government wants you to align with the U.S. federal government, right? So, you know, when you're taking funding, when you're looking at potential funding sources, you have to assess your foreign ownership control and influence, meaning focusing on, you know, Silicon Valley funds, focusing on U.S. funds, focusing on VCs that are in your, you know, local incubators or are in your local, you know, angel groups that can give you that first bit of funding it takes off a huge impediment that could exist as you start to scale, right? Because, you know, the government is getting more and more serious on foreign ownership control and influence and how it's going to dictate whether or not they're going to buy from you. And a lot of companies, a lot of, especially the largest technology companies are starting to account for this as well, because they've got large federal government contracts and cloud hosting or in services or in large-scale technology deployments, they're all starting to assess where your software is made and who owns your software or who's funded your software. You know, I would say focus on 5i partners, focus on those funding sources 
that aren't going to be an impediment from a due diligence perspective later on. And the other thing I would say is consider partnerships. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of partnerships and marketplaces for startups on the commercial side. But when it comes to the federal government, things like the AWS marketplace into some of the classified or secret environments, things like you know creating partnerships with large system integrators, those are great ways into government vehicles where you can gain you know your first level of visibility into the major decision makers and start to scale on your own. And one quick follow-up from that that first point. So is the government concerned about who the LPs of the fund are as well? Like, is it digging that layer deep or what does that look like? Yeah, so there is a question on who the LPs are, but the major issue is who controls and manages the fund, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, focusing on US funds that are distributed across LPs and are not essentially owned and managed by a foreign investment house or investment fund or where there isn't a single LP that largely dominates the investment and therefore could, you know, theoretically gain control of your business. That's where I would focus time. So there is a question as to who are the LPs of the fund, but usually that's so diversified that as long as, you know, 75, 80, 90% of the fund is, you know, US, UK, Canada, Australia, whatever it might be, right? That usually passes initial muster. Got it. So just not taking money from the sovereign wealth fund of North Korea is the uh, the high level advice there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly right. And uh, there are a few other countries you can put on that list. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Last question. I know we're up on time. Let's zoom out into the future. So three to five years from today, what does the company look like? So, you know, our aspiration is to do good and to do well. So we want to be the platform that is helping our customers to not think about risk. And what I mean by that is, you know, procurement people, compliance people, operations people have so much that they have to consider when making business relationship decisions that we want to be the platform that returns that conversation to a question of just performance and price, because that's where they're naturally skilled. That's where our global procurement and supply chain professionals have operated for the last 30 years. And what we're trying to do is make it so that the risk management aspect of it is something that the platform is providing you insight into if and when you need to know it, right? And so the way that I think about our future is we're making the world a safer and more transparent place for our customers to succeed. So we want our customers to be using our platform to make every single business relationship decision, to buy every single one of their products, to buy all of their services downstream because they know if there's an issue that would stop them or cause them pause before making that decision, they know our platform is going to flag it. So we want to be the procurement platform for all of our customers to orchestrate, efficiently manage, and to maintain compliance within their procurement environment. Amazing. I love it. 
Brandon, we are over on time, so I'm not going to keep you any longer. This conversation has been a blast. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where should they go? So exeger.com is a great place. The other place is actually our LinkedIn feed. It's got all of the events that we're doing. It's got all of our thought leadership. And then most importantly, it's got all of our acquisitions. So you can see how we're continuing to build out our total addressable market and the impact that we can make for our customers. Amazing. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time. I've learned so much from you on this episode. I know it's going to be a hit with our audience. They're going to love it too. So thanks so much for taking the time and sharing such tactical and valuable insights. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Brad. Appreciate your time. All right, keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.